Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and we are podcast wherever you find your podcasts. If you're listening by podcast, please subscribe, tell your friends, share this on social media so we can grow our listening audience. We're brought to you today by the Capital Center for the Arts in Concord, New Hampshire, ccanh.org, wrapping up a summer season and hopefully moving indoors for terrific performances at both the main stage and the new Bank of New Hampshire stage with appropriate protocols in place because we are all still struggling with now the Delta variant of COVID-19 and performance venues are working day by day to try to do it right and keep everybody safe. So visit ccanh.org and get your tickets for this exciting season. I'm very pleased to welcome a friend and special guest, Roy Morrison. Roy is a solar energy developer. He's managing partner of Renewable Sun Partners. He's a prolific author, writer, social theorist, uh, and environmental activist. Uh, he has more than 40 years of diverse energy experience, including energy efficiency work, technical assistance for businesses, institutions, and government. He was founding director of the Office of Sustainability uh, at SNHU. He wrote the first law in the United States for municipal aggregation under retail electric competition. And in New Hampshire, folks, we are just at the dawn of uh, municipal aggregation because in New Hampshire, we do things our own way, which is really slow when it comes to energy and the environment. Roy also founded the New Hampshire Consumers Utility Co-op, the first seller of competitive electricity in New Hampshire. He was a founding staff member of the UNH Energy Office. He was a safe energy activist with the Clamshell Alliance in the 1970s and 80s, co-founder of the American Peace Test and staff for the nuclear freeze campaign in the 1980s. So Roy has been focusing on both the environment and peace for a long time. His latest book is Sustainability Sutra. Forthcoming are two books, The Green Republic and Ecological Economic Growth. Uh, he helped edit the Hangzhou Declaration for a global ecological civilization. His Chinese associates have told him he was the first person to use the term ecological civilization way back in 1995 in his book, Ecological Democracy. His latest work focuses on ways of making economic growth mean ecological improvement and developing means to value ecological sustainability uh, as the new uh, gold through the use of a new regulatory asset which he is calling sustainability credits, which could be monetized on the books of banks is paid in capital and is cash to be used for further renewable investments on a multi-trillion dollar scale. He is clearly one of the most advanced thinkers around. Roy, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to Capital Close-Up. Uh, thanks, Paul. Who is that interesting guy? That can't be me, Kat. 
that's right. Every time somebody reads, reads, you know, you hear your bio, you say, wow, who is that guy? Must be a must be, must be an interesting person. I, I'd like to know that person. So I'm I'm curious. Um, I arrived in New Hampshire way back in the 1970s at the, in the Pleistocene era. Uh, I was going to work uh, at the New Hampshire Attorney General's office at the time in the Criminal Justice Division. And uh, during um, uh, my early days, in fact, so early that uh, I remember during my interview for the job with then uh, New Hampshire Attorney General David Souter, later a Supreme Court Justice, um, he asked me uh, whether there were uh, any cases which I'd refuse to take. And uh, I, I think I told him at the time, I'm not going to prosecute people who were protesting at Seabrook. I'm not going to I'm just not going to get involved uh, because I think they're right. So I, I want to go back uh, in your career and find out where do you think your motivation for environmental and peace activism started? Where did where did it come from? Did it start as a kid? Did it start as an adult? Does it come from your parents, a teacher? Where, where, what's the, what do you see as the spark that got you started on this fascinating path? Well, I think it was my father, who was uh, a career uh, federal law officer, and he taught me about social justice. Uh, that he, you know, he he grew up with a his. My grandfather was very rich, so my uh, and so my father grew up in a place where he would take a train from Grand Central Station to uh, uh, Lake Champlain in Vermont for summer camp. It was very unusual for uh, a Jewish immigrant family. Uh, my grandfather made a lot of money running saloons and buying real estate. So my father and they lost their money during the depression. So my father ended up uh, with getting a job as a customs inspector, and and he understood that a lot of times uh, that people's conditions weren't were based on circumstance. So he, when one day we were driving around, he was cold November in New York, and he saw a middle-aged woman selling hot dogs outside. And he said to me, imagine your mother doing that. So that was a sense that my father looked at the world that, uh, so that I think that I had a basic sense of the importance of social justice uh, and circumstances led me to be involved in this Seabrook question because I was living in, at that time in Rochester, outside of Rochester in Lebanon, Maine. And we were about 30 miles away from Seabrook. So I got involved. Mm -hmm. how, how did you, how did it happen that you um, started out in, sounds like you started in New York uh, as a, as a kid um, growing up and what led you to New England and uh, New Hampshire? Well, I, I, in 19, uh, like 70 or so, 71, I think, no, actually 72, I, I went to Europe thinking I was going to live a life of travel and adventure. Uh, mm -hmm. And 
it turned out I had a lot of adventures, but I got sick and I returned back to New York and I went to uh, a, uh, a summer place in Vermont, sort of like a share house mm-hmm. where people from the city would, would rent uh, space in a, essentially a, a party venue in Wilmington, Vermont. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I fell in love with Vermont and then thought, I didn't know a whole lot about New England. I thought all New England was like Southern Vermont. That was a big mistake. Right. <laughs> that is true. There, there, are, there are distinct cultures. Right. So, but not knowing better, any better. So, you know, land was relatively more expensive than in, in Vermont. So the people that I met there, we bought a house, it turned out, in West Lebanon, Maine, which is a mm-hmm. really nice looking town, but not at all like Southern Vermont. Right. It was, you know, it's more like a, like Rochester, you know, yep. a, a factory shoe town. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the, uh, and so I got started to get involved in New Hampshire, uh, mostly. And suddenly I saw, uh, there was a, a talk by Guy Chichester uh, at the Rochester Public Library about Seabrook, and he showed the movie Love Joy's Nuclear War. Right. And so, um, yeah, right, right. So then suddenly I got involved in Clamshell. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, in, and the rest is history, you know, so... Yeah, for and folks, for for those of you who may be listening and who may not be familiar, um, the Clamshell Alliance was um, an organization that was formed to try to stop um, the construction of the Seabrook uh, nuclear plant, um, and it was an active and vibrant effort that lasted quite a few years, if I recall. Yeah, until it started in 76 and the last major actions took place in like 89. Right. Now, um, in a in a recent op-ed that you wrote, you talked a little bit about uh, some of uh, one of your uh, sort of uh, profound experiences um, uh, in which uh, following a series of large nonviolent actions in the late 1980s, five clamshell organizers were arrested and charged with a felony, criminal liability for the conduct of others. Now in New Hampshire, being charged with a felony is pretty darn serious. You can um, you can get fined a, a large amount of money and you can go to jail for a long time for a felony. Um, and I understand that you were one of those five. Um, how did that how did that happen? And 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 why did that happen? And, and why with the large group of clamshell uh, organizers and protesters, uh, why were only why were the five of you arrested? Well, it's fairly standard that uh, to stop uh, social movements, the, they'll attempt to arrest people they consider key organizers to intimidate people and tie you up in lawsuits and 
you be paying attention to that as opposed to uh, the the purpose that your the organization is working for. Uh, and it it turns out that uh, because we were we had people who were key organizers, but we but Clampshell was pretty much uh, a grassroots bottoms up organization, so that it was based on local groups which cohered into regional groups which became which were part of the the clamshell family so that uh, we were not led by one or two or three or four or five or ten people uh, that so that uh, I was not particularly concerned I, I was interested in what was going on I remember when I heard that they had put out a warrant for my arrest and I, I called uh, my attorney and I said, what should I do? He, he said, well, turn yourself in. <laughs> I, you know, and I think that's the fundamental difference between clamshell as a nonviolent organization that, you know, was interested in uh, organizing the public and, and gaining support and educating people on what, what the dangers were uh, to compare to groups like the the January 6th insurrectionists who were not interested in, in nonviolence, were interested in, in violence and uh, using force and uh, talking to each other uh, conspiratorially about violence. So the uh, one of the the key things I learned about nonviolence uh, is that uh, it does not protect you from bad things happening to you, but the but it's much much less likely that that people will be hurt and killed because of the power of nonviolence. Sure. Uh, you know, what was the you know, so? I, I'm just curious. I don't mean to interrupt, but as a result uh, of the warrant, you turned yourself in. Um, to the police, right? You went through that whole process. Were, was there a trial? No. What happened is, you know, there were five of us. Uh, it was the late Diane Dunphy, uh, who was a, a wonderful organizer, uh, a teacher in uh, Winnicott, uh also one of the Dunphy family. Uh, Kurt Ehrenberg, uh, Paul Gunter, myself, and I, forgot who the fifth one was. Um, so, uh, you know, when we had volunteer, you know, high powered and medium powered volunteer attorneys and uh, that, uh, and the, you know, there was various hearings before judges, but the things tended to peter out because it was, it was not driven by the attorney general in New Hampshire. It was more, uh, by the uh, the county attorney uh, was after us, and eventually uh, it didn't intimidate us. So the, it was really clear. The next weekend, there was another large rally across the the route one from Seabrook, uh, and there were a, a thousand people there, and everyone showed up wearing a, a button that said clamshell organizer, meaning, you know, that arresting five clamshell organizers was, was 
just the start of their trouble. You know, and that and, and the, there's a correspondence between that and what's going on in Texas now. That the Texas abortion law is designed to intimidate people, and people will start pro- providing abortion services, whether or not it's a constitutional right or still a constitutional right at this point. Uh, and if people say, well, that's nice, you know, and you can sue like a five people or five organizations, but if thousands of people say, no, uh, we're going to support w- women's rights to control their, their bodies and we're not going to be intimidated. Well, that raises the stakes enormously. And in, in general, when that happens, the, the, the government says, well, okay, we can, we can put five people in jail, we can put 10 people in jail, but we are not about to jail thousands of people or have thousands of suits. Uh, that, that's all we can do. Uh, so that's the essentially the power of nonviolence, because when people stop cooperating with illegitimate authority, then things change. You know, that, that's what happened. That's why Clamshell became a, a very large organization, uh, because the state overrode the, the votes of the small towns in the seacoast again and again. And, and the, the DOE did and, uh, that they were going to impose a nuclear plan on the people of New Hampshire. And that didn't work. I mean, it was a profound resistance to that nonviolent resistance. So I think that's the, that's the model for effective model for social change against illegitimate authority. Well, you know, and, and, and as you, you raise the, the example of Texas, we're in such a stunningly dystopian version of uh, America at the moment uh, with this extreme radical um, off the charts, right wing uh, version of uh, what uh, of democracy and patriotism, where you've got um, legislators and legislatures like Texas divining ways to circumvent um, essentially circumvent Supreme court law by empowering citizens anywhere to use the courts to uh, go after um, uh, women seeking abortions, doctors, nurses, their friends, their families with whom they may have discussed um, having a safe um, uh, termination of their pregnancy, which is their choice because it's their body. I mean, theoretically, under this crazy Texas law, uh, you could go after the cab driver who drove a person. I mean, and so uh, really what you're suggesting is, so here you've got this illegitimate use of the courts and le- the legislature running wild. And the response could simply be um, pack the courts with cases that gum the works up so badly uh, um, uh, that uh the Texas, you know, Texas can't do anything. Roy has just published a fascinating article uh, in Wall Street International entitled Global Commons or Billionaire Netocracy. Um, 
Roy, what's the article about? And uh, what was the genesis for you of this article? Well, I think the in the, the big picture is, is that we're, we're living in a, a world where the rich are getting richer and everyone else is getting poorer. You know, so that when I, when I in the ancient days, when I got married in, the, in 1969, I was able to support my wife and myself in New York City. I earned, like, I took home like $77 a week. I was editing English translations of Russian scientific journals for Plenum Press on like West 23rd Street in Manhattan. And we lived an okay life, uh, you know, with, with taking, you know, for two people, uh, we didn't have a car, but we, you know, there was good public transportation in New York. And now, uh, typical family, uh, everyone is working often multiple jobs just to, to stay afloat, you know? And so in, in, in the broader sense that, uh, the future seems to be that we now have billionaires on the way to become trillionaires. Uh, and that, that, you know, so the, the, the trillionaire will have their own giant corporation like Amazon will workers, you know, slave, uh, according, you know, they're monitored every, every aspect. They don't have time to take, uh, a bathroom break, they have to, you know, pee in a bottle. Uh, otherwise, they'll get fired because their productivity is is dropping. And all the the profit and effort uh, for their labor uh, it goes to the the small group of owners. That's an unsustainable situation, uh, you know. And that's the that's the direction we seem to be headed. There's uh, that workers are being increasingly re- replaced by machines. So, you know, so now people, there's robots in supermarkets cleaning the floor. There are machines that replace the cashiers. Uh, you know, so pretty soon that the, the, there are fewer and fewer jobs, which is saying, oh yeah, well, these are bad jobs and people can do something better. Uh, but in, in fact, uh, yes, there'll be high tech, you know, there'll be people like me who, you know, I, I, I run a business, I build solar farms, uh, you know, I'll do okay, but, but what, we're, you know, we, we're going to have a, we're building a society that has uh, a small group of incredibly wealthy owners who essentially don't pay taxes. Uh, technocratic support for them and an increasingly number of people that do not earn a living wage that that struggle so the that's not a sustainable model for a democracy or for global capitalist market uh going back to the 20s you can see henry ford realized if he wanted to sell his cars he needed to pay his workers a living wage he was an anti-union guy, as well as an anti-Semite, but he also understood that if he didn't pay workers a, a fair living wage, then 
no one is going to be able to buy his cars. You know, and we've gotten away from that sense that people deserve a fair wage, that once you get above a, uh, a multiple of about six or seven to one between the highest paid and the lowest paid, then you, you start to have creation of a, of a privileged upper class uh, and uh, people become essentially wage slaves. Uh, you know, so that's the question. Are we going to have a common prosperity where every person has a reasonable share of the social product? It's not given to them, but they're, but people, in ter- as they work, they get, they make decent money, and everyone is entitled to a share of what we what we earn. So that means if there are fewer jobs, then people will work part time and share those jobs. I mean, that's the essential difference. Mm-hmm. That uh, you know, that we're not we're creating a, a system where there's no opportunities. You know, so that th- that was the resonance behind, I think, Andrew Yang was saying we should have uh, a, uh, a a guaranteed income for everybody. Right. Uh, you know, it, stri- it strikes me, Roy, that, that I mean, th- your your observation raises uh, obviously a, a profound questions that I think in many ways are at the heart of um, the current a political debate. I mean, we've just suffered through the presidency of um, a somebody who might be, he, he might be a billionaire. It might all be fake. It might all be paper. He might be so deep in debt that, that uh, 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 Trump's alleged wealth is, is mythological. Um, that's, that's quite possible, but be that as it, as it may, we've seen, and especially during the pandemic, the, the growth of wealth uh, of the billionaire trillionaire class has exploded while so many have lost their jobs and lost their opportunity. And at the, at the, one of the questions I've, I've been thinking about is you've got um, a, 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 Sensible democracy, uh, although the Supreme Court is doing its best to take away the rights of people to vote. You've got a capitalist system, which um, seems to me to have been to to have what we seem to be suffering with is a perversion um, of um, of certain uh, tenets of a regulated um uh capitalist system because a capitalist system left unfettered to greed um perverts the opportunity that uh, needs to be in the system in, in order to produce the kind of um uh sustainable uh distribution of wealth across the society that permits um, ecological um, ecological growth and ecological action and political action and a productive uh, productive society. I mean, in 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 this country, um, you know, you talk about the way things used to be. Well, there was a social contract with corporations who understood that if they that they were part of a community, they needed to treat their workers. 
in uh, fairly in large part, uh, nobody begrudged the managers and CEOs for making something more than the workers. But now uh, the uh, CEOs uh, and managers uh, make make hundreds and hundreds of times uh, what uh, the, the workers make. Jeff Bezos can uh, fly to the moon uh, while the people who work for him can't go to the bathroom. There is something uh, deeply flawed in in that equation, the social contract has been broken. We're suffering with a capitalism of rampant uh, greed, and um, uh, we're we 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 you know we exalt the opportunity of individuals in this country to succeed, but that opportunity is limited where you've got this disparate wealth and disparate opportunity. How, how in a country like ours, uh, a young country um, suffering from tribalism in our politics, how do we, what's the change that's necessary? Does it come from the government? Does it come from people? Does it come from outside the government? Um, because if, if, if your answer is it's got to come from the government, um, that's a pretty challenging, that's a pretty challenging uh, answer because look at how, uh, how divided and often ineffective our government is. So, so how do, how does it change? What's the answer, um, and uh, what's the alternative? Well, I, I, I of course, that's a, a, there aren't magic solutions. But I think looking back in, in the near past, historically, uh, that the people who voted for Donald Trump were also people who, that were ready to vote for Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, so Bernie was the real thing. Donald Trump is a fraud. But, the, you know, that 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 if, you know, if you listen to Bernie, he was saying that working people are being screwed, you know, fundamentally stepped on, ignored, trashed. And that should change. So I think that message, if it comes from both the government and from below, uh, from the people, uh, that, that becomes a, a very powerful driver for social change. I mean, what's happened, unfortunately, with the, uh, the, the Trump base, uh, have th their response uh, to, you know, so the first thing that Donald Trump the major thing that Donald Trump did in power, in addition to appealing to racism and sexism, was that he cut taxes on the rich. You know, he, he really stacked the deck so that it's really impossible uh, to fund social programs, uh, to stop the rich from getting endlessly richer. Uh, so th those are structural changes. And then there's a and then you add the pandemic and the and economic collapse and, and the bailout of the once again of the super rich. Most of the money, you know, and the snap of fingers. Barack Obama uh, in the first the Great Recession, uh, instead of insisting that yes, we'll will stop the banks from going bankrupt, but at the same time, will we'll stop people from being foreclosed on their homes. And I think that that's the explanation for the rise of Donald Trump. 
that in fact people saw what was happening that the rich the bankers didn't go to jail they they got their golden parachutes and kept their jobs yeah well you know, millions hey, of people yeah. lost their jobs I'll tell you a very quick story. I was in Congress on the Financial Services Committee during the Great Recession or the beginning of it and the attempt to do something to uh, get out of it. Um, and I won't go on at length about all of that, but a central uh, and I and I'm and I unlike you, I'm not that smart. But one of the things that I divined, at, both from a political and practical standpoint, was the point that you've just raised, that here we were bailing out the banks. Um, and first, I proposed a different approach to bailing out the banks. I said, what we really need to do is go back to a, a federal bank that's designed to to um, help uh, both financial institutions and people. And I recall very clearly that I, I voted against the bailout. Um, and I did it as uh, really as some form of a protest because I had been saying, if we do not take really powerful action at the same time as we are bailing out the banks to help people who have lost their homes to foreclosure. And yes, I understand the consequences of bailing out people who have just been taking advantage of being able to flip properties, but there are millions of people who are going to lose their homes to foreclosure because of the failure failures at the banks. If we don't help the people instead of just the banks, the political consequences are going to be, and the practical consequences are going to be devastating. First of all, on a practical level, the recession will continue uh, much longer than it should. And on a political level, Democrats are, are going to get tagged for not holding the bankers' uh, feet to the fire, for not holding anybody accountable, and for giving up on, on the people in this country who were the victims of this massive failure uh, of both regulatory behavior and uh, the uh, you know the fact that bankers bankers and uh, and, uh, and and stock bro and, and stock stock guys will always try to find the loopholes to make as much as they can and uh, people people be damned. So I, let me just return to your article because in your article you have proposed that the sustainable alternative to netocracy and hyper private is the growth, health, and strengthening of commons regimes. Um, it's a, and you've said that the commons is different from that of private property or state. Um, and you also said in your article that commons and commons regimes emerge as an entity distinct from the nation in its public and private personas. Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts about what what you mean? What are, what are what are commons? Do they exist or do we have to create them? And 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 how do they work differently than the current dysfunctional uh, system? Well, the you know traditionally commons were places like the Boston Commons, where you know, it was common grazing area where where everyone was could take advantage of it at the same time that the ability to use it is balanced by the responsibility to take care of things. Uh, so that, you know, so private property 
uh, allows the maximum abuse of things. A commons regime is based on a social agreement, whether that's supported by law or just by common practice, to care for the, the resources, care for the people, care for the land, do not poison the well, maintain things, have the same mindset as the Native Americans who look at things at their best from the standpoint of seven generations. So what will this be like in seven generations from now? So that it, in, you know, in, in Europe, for example, th there's a, a tradition in, uh, in, in England of they beat the bounds so that uh, once a year they ceremoniously go around <clears throat> the borders of the commons and make sure that there are no fences up. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> you know, so that th there was a long sense that, you know, that the, the farmers, the, the shepherds uh, had a, a common interest in ma maintaining the, uh, the freedom that they had to, to use the land to, to live a, a decent life, you know, which ran into the enclosure movement. Uh, where people gained control of the land, put up fences, uh, turned the independent farmers into sharecroppers, essentially, and then into industrial labor. Uh, you know, and so, so obviously we're not, we don't live in a pre predominantly uh, agricultural society anymore, but we don't, but even on the agricultural level, that the small farmers are are being decimated, you know, but by agribusiness uh, and chemical agriculture, and the the consequences not just for for farmers and farm communities, but the consequences for the environment are catastrophic, and that's part of the global threat of ecological collapse, that the, the saving response to that is an, is an ecological agriculture. And in similar fashion, the saving response is an ecological industry that's based on zero pollution and zero waste. And, that, and for capitalism, capitalism can make enormous amounts of money. The economy can grow multiple times larger than it is now, but but only if it's based on the, fa the fact that economic growth must mean ecological improvement. You know, for example, a simple one, if you transform the global energy system from oil, coal, natural gas, and nuclear power into solar power, wind power, tidal power, you'll have, an, you will make trillions of dollars of, you will have, enormous investments, enormous job creation, and enormous decrease in pollution, depletion, and ecological damage. What's, why shouldn't we do that? You know, there needs to be a clear change in market rules, laws, and regulation that say, if you want to make money, you must do it in a sustainable fashion. And you can, and that doesn't mean the government has to regulate everything you do, but what it means is, 
that the idea that fiduciary responsibility, you know, if you're running a, a, an organization, whether it's a for-profit or non-profit, that it means the growth of that organization must be based on ecological improvement. You know, that's, and the profit will increase for ecological organizations. They will gain market share, their profit, their products will become cheaper and more profitable. You know, in that sense, profound market signals, you know, people know how to make money when they understand how the, what the, what the rules are. You know, some things you can't do things that, that you can do and you make more money by doing it. Uh, so that's both a, a, a bottom up and, and top down uh, recipe, you know, for, for ecological economic growth. So the economy can become several times larger than it is now with several orders of magnitude less pollution, depletion, and ecological damage. Uh, so it means that, you know, so that the propaganda being put out by the fossil fuel industry, they're all in now, uh, if you talk to Exxon or BP or Chevron, they'll tell you, oh yeah, we're all in for, you know, for sustainability and we going to reduce our carbon footprint and don't worry. And natural gas is the, the bridge fuel and we'll keep polluting. And, and, uh, you know, we, we want to keep drilling for, for, for oil and natural gas and don't worry, be happy. Uh, but the, the reality is we're rapidly, uh, moving towards irreversible climate change that can persist for hundreds of thousands of years, uh, you know, and we can create a Mad Max future for ourselves, or we can take fundamental steps away from that and, and embrace a sustainable, profitable, profitable and just society. And yep. That's the issue. You got it. So, Roy, I'm going to have to stop you because we've run out of time. Folks, I'm talking with Roy Morrison, author, activist, environmentalist, entrepreneur, uh, thinker, a person uh, who really cares about the future of our planet and the good of people. His fascinating article, Global Commons or Billionaire Netocracy, has just been published in Wall Street International. Uh, it was published on September 2nd of 2021. I commend it to all of you because he shows the way to meld our, frankly, our political system and our social consciousness in a way that will elevate um, the environment, our ecological sense, and save the planet. Roy, thanks for joining us. This is Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes here on WKXL. We are podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Check out our website at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.